Good morning. As the kids make their way out, I'd like the rest of us to please uh, go ahead and make our way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. This morning, we're going to be uh, continuing in our study through the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, we want to encourage you guys, go ahead and open up. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, a number of the chairs underneath you have Bibles. Feel free to reach down and grab one. We do think it's important that you're able to follow along. Uh, last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 6 in a message that I entitled, Honoring the Sabbath. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember how we looked at a couple different events that occurred on a couple of different Sabbaths. On one Sabbath... Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they were accused of breaking the Sabbath because they plucked heads of grain while walking through some grain fields. Uh, The Sabbath was to be a a day of rest. There was to be no work that was done on the Sabbath. And in order to ensure that they didn't break the Sabbath, the religious leaders had made up all sorts of crazy categories of what constituted work, and they did their best to stick to the strictest letter and interpretation of the law. But in doing so, they missed out on the spirit of the law. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest, a day of worship unto the Lord, but they turned it into a day of strict rituals and regulations that made it near impossible to find rest on the Sabbath because you'd constantly be in fear of breaking the Sabbath. You'd be like walking on eggshells. You're so worried and concerned that you're going to do something that would be categorized as that's work you just broke the sabbath and they turned it into this really horrible horrible thing uh on another sabbath the religious leaders they tried to catch jesus in a trap by seeing if he would heal a man on the sabbath and and to them healing was considered work and so it was forbidden to heal on the sabbath and so they tried trapping jesus but jesus taught them that it's always permitted to do good and to save life, okay? Whether it be the Sabbath or any other day. And then it's never permissible to do evil or to destroy life no matter what day it was. Jesus healed the man, even though it was the Sabbath. And the religious leaders, they responded, well, they responded by gathering together and plotting how they may destroy Jesus. Here they were trying to trap Jesus into breaking the Sabbath law by healing someone And when they didn't like what happened, they started plotting on how they were going to murder an innocent man, and yet they had no qualms with doing that. That was okay, uh, evidently, to do, (laughs) even though it's obviously not. But it was just crazy how far they had missed it, the religious leaders. Well, this week in our account, we're going to continue making our way uh, through Luke's gospel. We're going to continue looking at some continued ministry in the region of Galilee, Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. And the title of our study is going to be The Chosen Ones. Okay? The Chosen Ones. Jesus chose a special group of people to follow after him, to learn from him, to be his disciples. And as we go through our text, we're going to note some of the things that stand out in regard to Jesus' choosing of these men. And we're going to look to make application to our own lives. And so, let's go ahead. Let's uh, rise to our feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read through our text this morning. Again, we're in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 12 through 19. I'm going to read from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Okay? Luke writes in chapter 6, verse 12 
the following. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. That's our text for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this opportunity that we have to gather together as a church family to seek you, to hear from you, our Abba Father. Lord, I pray that we would be open to all that your spirit desires to say today. Lord, in like manner, as we've opened up our Bibles, Lord, I pray that our hearts would also be open, Lord, to receive from you. Uh, Lord, we trust in your word your word tells us that you're going to complete the work that you began in us. And so, Lord, as we gather today, we really are gathering, asking you, Lord, to go ahead and, and work on us, Lord, to chisel away on us, to mold us, to shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we yield ourselves to you, to your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, do a work in us. Do a work in us individually, Lord. Do a work in us corporately as a church body. We're yielded to you, submitted to you, to your word. And Lord, we look forward to hearing from you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Growing up, uh, I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up, uh, um, you know, like any other normal kid, I guess. Uh, not that kids that go to church aren't normal, but, um, you know, um, Maybe that's debatable even. Um, but I, I grew up, I wasn't a believer, went to public school system. I enjoyed quite a few different uh, team activities uh, during recess. Okay, that was my favorite time of the day. Um, recess was always a lot of fun. You look forward to that uh, recess break time, and then there would be lunch, and it's like you inhale your lunch as fast as you could so you can go out and play on the, on the fields and on the courts. Um, you know, oftentimes there was a, a good-sized group of kids that wanted to play uh, different things, basketball, dodgeball, kickball, a uh, host of other team activities. And inevitably, two kids would be selected as team captains. And then they'd be uh, forced into that awkward situation of choosing teams. Uh, and those times would always turn out to be a bit sticky when it came to the end. Because, well, nobody wants to be the last person picked, or worse yet, okay, uh, the person that's not picked at all. Um, growing up as a kid, I played uh, Little League Baseball. I, I played some Pop Warner football, so I was pretty athletic. Rarely did I ever have to worry about being the one of the last kids picked or the kid not picked at all, uh, but inevitably it happened. Um, it happens to us all. <laughs> and, and it's always a blow to the ego, you know, a, a real uh, bummer not to be picked by your peers as someone that they would want on their team. In our text this morning, Jesus takes on the task of selecting 12 disciples, that he will use to pretty much 
flipped the world upside down, uh, or better yet, we would say right side up. Jesus had quite the following, as we've already noted from our studies uh, thus far through the Gospel of Luke. Multitudes of people have been following him. Crowds of people okay, are thronging to him in just about every place that he goes to. And so to narrow down the field to just 12 amongst the potential of thousands that were following him, it may seem like a daunting task. But Jesus did have a few things going for him. Okay? One thing that's nice is that he isn't having to compete with someone else selecting people before him. Okay? Uh, it's not as if there were multiple teams and Jesus is picking against another team captain that could swoop in and steal some of his most tantalizing prospects, you know. Um, yesterday here at the church, uh, after men's breakfast, a couple of the guys got together and we took part in a fantasy football draft. Uh, we're playing just for fun, no gambling or anything like that. Um, and just as a way to engage one another. But anyways, as I was drafting my team of players, I kept getting frustrated because the guy immediately in front of me kept taking the guys that I wanted. And I kind of like counted out and I said, okay, this guy should be available when I go to pick. I'm going to pick him and I'll be good to go. And then right out from underneath me, he'd pick my guy. And I'd be like, you just took my guy. And I'd get mad at him. And <laughs> I won't mention any names because he's here this morning. But um, <laughs> anyways, okay, it was a little unnerving. And uh, it could be challenging to have your hopes on being able to select a, a certain person, a guy uh, for your team, and then have someone swoop in at the last second, pick him right out from underneath your nose. And it's like, oh, man. Maybe some of you guys can relate, you know, if <laughs> uh, you've been there before. Uh, fortunately for Jesus, okay, he wasn't having to choose against another team captain or another team manager. You know, can you imagine drafting your own team without any other competition, right? You'd have the best of the best, you know, the cream of the crop. Your team could be called the chosen ones, right? When we think of that title, chosen ones, we think of, you know, a group of people who are the best of the best. The, the most gifted, the most talented, the most capable of all. They are, you know, simply the best. And as we consider the fact that Jesus had such a large pool to choose from, and he wasn't necessarily choosing against another team captain, we would think that his 12 would simply be just that. These are the, the chosen ones, right? The smartest, the strongest, the best communicators, the best servants, the most godly, the most humble, the most honorable amongst all of these people. At least that is how you and I would most likely pick our team, okay? If we had thousands to choose from and we weren't choosing against anyone else, don't you think we would pick the, the best of the best, you know, the cream of the crop? We'd make sure we're a well-balanced team and we've got specialists that can do this and this guy's really great at this and this guy's really great at this and man, it's just going to be, we've, we're set, no weaknesses, right? We'd have a super team of disciples made up of the brightest and best men possible. And yet, as we look at Jesus' chosen ones, and we understand some of their backgrounds, some of their qualities, some of the things that they did, and, and many of, I'll say it, their shortcomings, okay? We could potentially begin to wonder if Jesus made some mistakes in his choosing. Church family, let me assure you, Jesus did not make any mistakes in his choosing of the 12. Each one was hand-selected by the Lord for a particular purpose, despite what we may think there were no mistakes. You know, as we get into our text, we're going to break it down into two small sections. Okay, section one will deal with Jesus' calling 
of his disciples in verses 12 through 16. And then section 2 will deal with Jesus' modeling for his disciples in verses 17 through 19. In each section, we're going to look to make certain observations, look to properly understand what was going on, and then look to see how these truths we discover apply to our own lives. So let's go ahead. We'll jump into that first section in verses 12 through 16, highlighting for us Jesus' calling of his disciples. Verse 12, it reads, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. We'll stop right there. Our text, it starts out with a a description of Jesus going up upon a mountain to pray. In fact, we're told that he spent the entire night in prayer, an all-nighter, praying and communing with the Father. Now, we are not told exactly what Jesus was praying for all night long. Uh, Some think that perhaps he was praying over which disciples to choose as the twelve to carry on his message after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Lord. That perhaps he was praying and and sifting through the thousands of followers and considering each one and and eliminating people, whittling it down to his disciples, uh, to these 12 best possible candidates. And that makes sense, you know, perhaps. I could see that, perhaps. Uh, But let me suggest another very real possibility, okay, uh, that I think is probably more in line with what was happening. I suggest to you that Jesus already knew who the 12 would be and that he was actually praying for each of them specifically all through the night. Knowing the challenges and the trials that would await them as his followers, knowing the pressure that they would feel, knowing the persecution they would have to endure, the temptations they would go through, he spent all night praying for each one of them. Jesus, I believe, was interceding on behalf of his disciples, those whom he knew he would choose to be the twelve, to carry on the message of his gospel. He spent the entire night in prayer, interceding for them, lifting them up to the Father. I imagine one by one, praying for them by name, specifically lifting up Peter. God, be with Peter. You know, God, be with James. Be with John. Be Be with Andrew. Praying for each one of these men that he would select. And as we think about that idea of him praying for each one of these, I find it amazing to consider that Jesus Christ would specifically pray for those who would follow him. But even more amazing is that he specifically prays for each and every one of us as well. The God who created the universe, he spoke it into existence. By his word, all things were made. He prays for you. He prays for me. Hebrews chapter 7 describes Jesus by stating how he lives to make intercession for those who are saved. Hebrews 7.25 talks about that. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 describes Jesus as being at the right hand of God in his throne room, interceding for us. Paul, he describes to Timothy, how there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. John even describes Jesus as our advocate before the Father in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus prayed for his disciples and he prays for us as well. And how comforting it is to know that we have a mediator between God and us, an advocate one interceding on our behalf, lifting us up to the Father. 
I've been reading in my daily devotions through the book of Job. And more than once or, or twice, he is seen praying and asking, God, if there was just someone that could stand between you and me to be this go-between, that they may lay their hand on me, one hand on me and one hand on you, Lord, and be this in-between that I might speak with you, that I might engage with you. He was praying for Jesus. And we have that available to us. Next time you feel like you need prayer, I want you to be reminded that Jesus Christ is constantly interceding before the Father on your behalf. Jesus never forgets to pray for us. He lives to make intercession for us. It's part of his every day being. It's like the breath that he breathes. He is praying for us. Don't forget that, church family. Okay? So after spending the entire night in prayer, Jesus called those he himself wanted. And in this, we see the sovereignty of God at work. Jesus specifically sovereignly chose the disciples whom he himself wanted. And later he would actually attest to these very disciples. He would say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And just as God specifically chose these 12 disciples, he too has specifically chosen each and every one of us to be his sons and daughters, to be on his team, so to say. Ephesians says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You see, there's great comfort in knowing that God has chosen us according to the good pleasure of his will. Listen, he chose us before we did anything for him, okay? Before we showed any potential, before we did anything that we might say deserved his attention or deserved his love or favor, God delighted in choosing us. You see, his choosing was not based upon our efforts. It was not based upon our abilities, our strengths, okay? It wasn't like, oh, that guy's, you know, he's really good. I'm, I want him on my team. No, no, no. Before we did anything, before the foundation of the, of the world, he chose us. God delighted in choosing us. And it was all according to his good pleasure. Why did he choose us? Because it gave him great joy to do so. The sovereignty of the Lord is amazing. Okay? It is glorious. Okay? It is a wonderful truth of Scripture. But it is balanced out with Scripture with the responsibility of man. Human responsibility. You know, we don't see it specifically in Luke's gospel, but in Mark's gospel, when Jesus called his disciples, it tells us how they responded. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it states this in the parallel account. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Here we see the responsibility of man at work. Jesus called his disciples, but they had to respond to that calling in their life. They had to make the choice to be obedient to that calling. And just as the disciples had the responsibility to respond to Jesus' calling in their life, we too are responsible for responding to his calling in our own life. God has given us a will of our own. 
He's given us the power to choose him or to reject him, to be obedient or to be disobedient. God will not force himself upon us. He will not force us to be obedient to him. You know, the debate between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, it has been going on for centuries. Throughout the scriptures, we read of evidence of both. To us, in our finite, limited minds, these two ideas, they are mutually exclusive. Okay? We cannot comprehend how these two things are, can both be true at the same time. That God is, is completely sovereign or, and that we have a responsibility and God's going to hold us accountable. You know, and oftentimes we make the mistake of just you know, putting all of our eggs in one basket and, and just dismiss the other one. Say, nope, God's sovereign. It's all about God. God does everything and it, man has nothing at all whatsoever to do with it. No responsibility whatsoever. And then you have another extreme where you go over here and you say, it's all on you. You better make sure you're doing good. You better make sure you've prayed for you know, forgiveness for every single sin that you've ever committed because it, you know, God's grace is not going to be there enough for you. You really got to do this. Right? And we have these extremes of it always upon us or it always upon the Lord. The scriptures teach both. Throughout the scriptures, we have evidence of both. In our minds, we don't understand that, but God operates on a level that we know nothing about. He is an infinite God with an infinite mind. He works things that we can't possibly begin to understand. You know, and that's one of the things that makes God so awesome. It is one of the things that makes him so worthy of our praise and of our worship because we can spend an entire lifetime seeking him and never come close to completely understanding God and all of his ways. They are beyond us. I don't know about you. I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, but I found that in my own life, the more I'm walking with the Lord, the closer I get with the Lord, the further I realize just how much there is that separates myself from the Lord. At first, when I got saved and I started getting into the Word, I was like, okay, I got it, I understand. And then I'd come across something, like, oh, I don't understand that. But, okay, that's the only thing I don't understand. I got all the rest. And the more uh, deeper my walk with the Lord, the more deeper my relationship with the Lord, after walking with Him for 20 years now, I realized, man, there is more and more and more. I realized, God, I have no idea of how your ways are. They are just beyond me. And, and, and we have to come to a point where we say, I'm okay with that. You know, if, if we could fit God into our box and say, oh, I know everything there is to know about God, I think he ceases to become God. He's become something that we've kind of created. He's not God. <laughs> not the God of the Bible. And so... When we come to portions of Scripture that seem to us, in our finite minds, perhaps irreconcilable, we have to trust that God knows what he's talking about. Okay? When God doesn't fit into our theological boxes, we must be okay with that. C.H. Spurgeon, you guys maybe have heard of him, British um, preacher, very famous, was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. And this is what he's quoted as saying. He said this, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. He continued and he confessed. He says, where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have given up my mind to believing them both. 
God's word clearly teaches both and gives evidence for both. And since God is okay with both, we too must be okay with both. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they are friends. Okay? They don't need for us to try and reconcile them. Back to our text. In verse 13, we're told that when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. It says, when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. A disciple is a learner or a student, one who follows the teachings and the actions of another. An apostle is something that's different. Okay? An apostle is a chosen messenger sent with a special commission. Jesus had many disciples, but he only handpicked 12 apostles. They were sent out as ambassadors of Christ, as chosen messengers and representatives of Christ to the world around them. In verses 14 through 16, they are listed off the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. It says, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. We're going to take a look at these individuals and note a few things that we know about them and see what we can't learn about Jesus' chosen ones. And we're going to start off, first of all, with Simon Peter. Most of you probably are familiar with Simon Peter. Simon Peter is mentioned first in all of the other lists in Scripture of the names of the apostles in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, here in Luke's Gospels, and even in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter always is listed first. So what do we know about Peter? Well, we know he was a fisherman. Okay? Uh, in fact, some say that up to half of these guys could have been fishermen. Uh, fishermen are generally hard workers, but... They can also have a reputation for being perhaps a bit crude uh, in manner, rough in speech, and in their treatment of others. We know that Peter was impulsive. Okay? I think that's to say, to put it lightly. Okay? In Mark chapter 14, verse 29, he rejected Jesus' words, saying that all the di- disciples would stumble and declared, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Uh, you guys know how that ended out, right? Okay? Peter was the one who drew out his sword and chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant on the night in which they came to arrest Jesus and take him away. Peter's the one that asked the Lord to call him out onto the water, to walk on it. And he walked on water, uh, which is amazing. Uh, Then he got his eyes off the Lord and began to sink. He's the one that wanted to make three tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Over and over we see him act first and and maybe think second, right? Definitely act first, and sometimes there was some thought afterwards, okay? Not only was he impulsive, but he also rejected the Lord, and not just in a, in a passive, kind of discreet way. Mark 14 tells us that he did so cursing and swearing. I do not know this man of whom you speak, okay? That uh, sailor's mouth, perhaps, that fisherman's mouth, came out in his cursing and swearing, He chose Andrew. What do we know about Andrew? Well, Andrew was the brother of Peter. He too was a fisherman. Andrew was at first a disciple of John the Baptist and is often mentioned in connection with bringing individuals to Jesus. I kind of think that's kind of cool. If you ever read about uh, Andrew in the New Testament, oftentimes it's someone wanting to come to Jesus. They bring him, bring him to Andrew, and Andrew brings them to Jesus. He's always seen as this person bringing people to the Lord, uh, uh, 
cool little picture there. But I also think Andrew pictures someone who really can't escape Big Brother's shadow. It's always about Peter. It's Peter, Peter, Peter. Uh, and Andrew's just this kind of guy mentioned on the side. James and John were chosen as well. These uh, were fishermen, and Jesus gave to them the nickname, uh, the very distinct nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Uh, to me, it sounds more like a tag team wrestling duo than it does, um, you know, some people that are sent out to spread the message of God's love. These guys were harsh. They were presumptuous. In Luke 9, after Jesus was not received by a Samaritan village, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? You know, I, I wish I could have seen the Lord's face when he heard these guys make such a declaration. I, I'm like, I wonder if he's like, really, guys? Do you think you can do that? Do you think you can call down fire and consume this village? Come on. Lighten up. You know, I just, these guys, they were a little bit much to handle. We also see them try and sneak into seats of honor behind the backs of the other disciples. They were a little manipulative, a little deceptive. Yeah, they tried making a power play for sitting at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. They even invited Mama to come in and say, Hey, Mom, go talk to Jesus and let him know that you know, we're ready to be on his right and left. And, and the other disciples were infuriated when they found out that they were making this uh, power play. They were even a bit cliquish as well. John's recorded as rebuking someone, not allowing them to minister in Jesus' name because, well, they didn't hang out with them. You know, they didn't, they didn't walk around in the same circles as we did, so we told them they, can, they can't talk about Jesus. They can't tell people about Jesus because they're not part of our group. <laughs> he chose Philip. Not much is said about Philip. In John chapter 6, he's seen clueless as to how to provide food for the multitudes. Then you've got Bartholomew. Hey, Bartholomew is often associated with the disciple uh, Nathaniel. They're the same person. Uh, a different name. A lot of these disciples had multiple names, uh, but the same person. Nathaniel was a skeptic, a cynic, okay? When told about Jesus being the Messiah, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We have Matthew, okay? What do we know about Matthew? Uh, he was just a, a tax collector that was hated by pretty much every single Jew. Jesus chose Thomas. I believe Thomas will forever be remembered as Doubting Thomas, right? He didn't believe Jesus had been resurrected. He's one of those guys that states, I've got to see it to believe it, right? He even took it a step further. He said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and I put my finger into the print of the nails and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. James, the son of Alphaeus, is pretty much an unknown, okay? a, a, a nobody, if you will. He's even referred to sometimes as James the Less. How'd you like that to be your nickname? Oh, you're James? Yeah, I'm James the Less. Yeah, that's me. I'm that one. <laughs> We've got another named uh, Simon who is called the Zealot. Uh, Simon was a, a political rebel. Okay? He was associated with the Zealots. They were people that tried to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire in the early first century. Zealots were a group of fanatical Jewish patriots whose purpose was to deliver Israel from the tyranny of Rome. And they used every means at hand, including terror and assassination, to accomplish their purposes. 
You know, it's amazing to consider and to think that Jesus would choose a zealot who hated everything Rome on the same team as a tax collector that was working for the Roman authorities. Can you imagine those guys getting together for Bible study and hanging out together? I I can't. You've got Judas, the son of James, was also chosen by the Lord. He goes by several different names, actually. He goes by the name of Thaddeus, as well as the name Labaius. I think he'd be okay with any name other than Judas, is what my thought is, because it's like, call me anything but that. Um, Because lastly, he chose Judas Iscariot. And and we all know how that turned out. A traitor. uh, A betrayer. He sold out the Lord for a few pieces of silver. He was stingy. He was greedy. He was a thief. Scriptures tell us that he was the one in charge of holding the money box and that he would routinely take from it and steal from his own friends. Judas is always mentioned last among the list of the disciples, I think, for obvious reasons. You know what's even crazy to consider is that Jesus chose Judas knowing full well what he was doing, and that he would betray him. And he still chose him. You know, as I look over this list of individuals, I can't help but scratch my head at God's choice. You know, I'm like, like, and and we may even think, you know, maybe Jesus should have spent two nights in prayer, not just one, because we look at this list and and we don't understand. Why did the Lord choose these men, of all the men that were following him, I can't help but think that there, there had to have been better options. Let me suggest to you, I believe there are at least two main reasons God chose these men. Okay? And I want to suggest this to you. I may suggest to you that God chose these men so that we would look at them and find comfort and we would find hope for ourselves. Because as I look at this list of individuals that God chose to entrust his ministry and his message to, I can't help but think, well, maybe, just maybe, God can use me if he can use them. Maybe some of you here today can relate to some of these guys. Maybe you're a little impulsive, and you're like Peter, and you have a a, a foot-shaped mouth, Maybe you feel buried under the shadow of someone else. Maybe you've even been known to be a little too harsh sometimes or maybe a little presumptuous. Perhaps you've been known as a doubter, a skeptic, maybe even uh, a little cynical. Some of you may even have checkered pasts like Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Some of you may associate with James the Less. You feel like, you know, I'm just a nobody, you know. You don't have anything to offer. Can I encourage you to take hope and comfort in the list of men that is before you. God used the most unlikely of men to do incredible things. And so I think he chose these men to bring hope and comfort to us, but I also think there's another reason. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He states that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's the answer. Verse 29, it says that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, if God would have chosen the super gifted, those full of faith, the clean and the proper, people may have looked at them and thought that they actually had something to do with it. That God could use them, well, 
Well, because look at them. You know, they're so gifted and they're so talented. They're so great. Of course God could use them. No. God chose these guys so when the world was turned right side up by their ministry and the message that people would say, this has to be God. There's no other explanation because it certainly wasn't these guys. And I hope not to offend anybody here this morning, okay? But if God chooses to use you, it's probably not because you're super talented. It's more likely that he chose you because you were foolish enough. And you were weak enough. Or insignificant enough. To the point where when God does do something amazing, and something incredible in your life, that people around you will say, that has to be a God thing. These guys were chosen because they're the guys that you and I, we wouldn't choose. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. God chose the most unlikely of people to give us comfort and hope and to ensure that no flesh would glory in his presence. God would use these men to flip the world right side up and he desires to use us in similar ways as well, to be used by him to impact the world around us. These men weren't special. They weren't extraordinary. Okay? They didn't have great abilities, great talents and giftings. They were simply willing and available to the Lord and God did the rest. And I believe God continues to desire to do a work in and through those who will say, I'm willing and available. I don't have much, but what I have, God, it's yours. Have your will in me. God will do amazing things in that kind of person's life. Let's take a look at our next section dealing with Jesus' modeling for his disciples in verses 17 through 19. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. We read in these verses that as Jesus came down the mountain with his disciples, that there was a multitude of people to meet them with all sorts of ministry needs. They came not only to hear Jesus and the message that he preached, but they came to be healed by Jesus, to be touched by him, to be set free from the demonic powers that tormented them. And Jesus ministered to each of them. He healed them all, casting out the demonic, healing the diseased. Now, We've noted how Jesus has done similarly already in our study of the Gospel of Luke. This wasn't a new thing that Jesus was doing here. He often healed the diseased, and he often cast out the demonic. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time explaining those things this morning, seeing as we've already covered Jesus' great authority over these situations, over sickness and disease and demonic activity. What I do want to point out is the model that Jesus gives to his newly called disciples, his apostles. In Mark's gospel account, we are actually told that what specifically the disciples were called to. Mark gives an explanation as to what the disciples were being uh, called to do. 
In Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it states, Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Jesus called these men to four things. One, to be with him. Two, to go out and preach. Three, to heal sicknesses. And four, to cast out demons. And then immediately after explaining these things to them, he went down the mountain and modeled these things for them. He went down with them to a level place to meet the multitudes. And he taught the people. He healed the people of sicknesses. And he cast out the demonic. I want to take just a few minutes here just to explain something about these four things Jesus was calling these men to and modeling for them. Jesus called them to four things, but the first and most important thing that the disciples needed to understand is that they were being called to be with Jesus. If the disciples were going to be of any use or to have any sort of impact upon the world around them, they needed to make sure that they spent time with Jesus. Jesus knew how important it would be for the disciples to be with him, and that is why he called them and appointed them so that they would be with him. You see, the power to go out and preach, the power to heal sicknesses, the power to cast out demons, it was all predicated upon the disciples first and foremost spending time with Jesus. By spending time with Jesus, they were empowered to do that which God had called them to do. And the same is true for us. We need to come to Jesus. We need to spend time with the Lord. We need to invest in our relationship with Him and just by being with Him. And and you may be wondering, you know, how do I spend time with Jesus? Let me suggest two very simple and practical ways that you can spend time with Jesus. We'll wrap our time up. I'll let you guys go. One is through the Word. According to John chapter 1, Jesus is the Word. Verse 14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the Word become flesh. If you want to spend time with Jesus, make sure you're taking time to spend in the Word. Make it a habit to regularly meet, regularly meet with Jesus through the Word. Getting into your Bibles okay, on a regular basis, not just on Sundays. Okay, if you're only getting fed on Sunday mornings, your only time... In the Bible, with Sundays, you're malnourished spiritually, okay? You need to be getting into the Word every day. You need to be meeting with the Lord every day, okay? The second way that we can meet with Him, very simple way, is through prayer. Prayer is our way of communicating to Jesus. It's our way of speaking forth what's upon our heart, what's upon our, upon our mind. But it's also a good time, uh, prayer, it's always important to have a quiet time of prayer where we just wait upon the Lord and and see if the Lord might just speak to us in his still small voice. Maybe perhaps bring to remembrance things that we read in his word that apply to our situations in life and say, God, you know, just, I want to hear from you. You know, how do I work in this situation and just wait upon him? Two very simple ways to spend time with Jesus, through the word and through prayer. These two things are paramount to us being able to spend time with Jesus. That's why we read later on in the book of Acts about the 12 appointing people to serve tables so that they could continually give themselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word. The 12 knew they needed to spend time with Jesus, and so they protected that time of prayer. They protected that time of getting into the word, and we must learn to do the same if we want to be effective in the ministry that God has called us to. We need to make sure that we're spending time with the Lord. Wrapping this all up, we learn from our text regarding Jesus' chosen ones. 
the following, okay? Just as Jesus prayed for his disciples, he continually prays for us as well. We learn about how Jesus chose each of us to be his own, God's sovereignty. But we also learn, at the same time, each of us has a responsibility to respond to that calling, human responsibility. Also, we found great comfort and hope for us as we looked at whom the Lord chose for himself. It was a mixed bag of people that had all sorts of shortcomings, all sorts of problems, but that didn't keep Jesus from choosing them, didn't keep Jesus from using them to change the world as we know it. We were reminded of how God is to get all the glory for anything that he does in us and through us. And lastly, we're reminded of our need to simply come to Jesus and spend time with him, to be with him, knowing that as we just are with the Lord, these other things will fall into place. Knowing that the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we will become like him, the more equipped we will be to be effective tools of ministry in his hands. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for choosing us. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we thank you for choosing Simon Peter and uh, James and John and these guys that give us comfort and hope, realizing, wow, Lord, if you could use those guys to, to change the world, Perhaps you could even use us. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place with a sense of your calling upon our hearts and lives. What it is, Lord, you've, you've called each and every one of us, I believe. We're all not called to the same thing, Lord. We're called to different ministries, different seasons of life. But Lord, there's a purpose in each one of that calling, a purpose in each season. So, Lord, may we be faithful to spend time with you and grow through the seasons that you bring us through. And we find ourselves enjoying just being with you, Lord, and, and strengthening and developing our relationship with you and realizing that the closer and closer that we get to you, Lord, the more we realize just how awesome and amazing you are. Just all the things that separate us from you and make you so worthy of our praise and worship. Lord, we love you. And we thank you again for your word. Pray that you would continue to minister to our hearts and lives as we go our ways. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.